sermon outline so that you can follow along. Before we get into the sermon today, I do have a number of lost and found items. Um, I have five Bibles. Um, so if you're missing your Bible, they're down here. I've got a, one of the metal ones we give to the high schoolers, an NIV, paperback NIV study Bible, an NIV red letter, and really nice Reformation study Bible. Encourage you all to put names in your Bibles, and you don't have to do that. If one of you walked out without a pair of shoes, <laughs> they're not mine. And I have four pair of glasses. So if you had like trouble driving home last week, you know, I've got glasses. And a, uh, this is like a connection for a computer to plug in your computer or laptop. So if you've been looking for that, it's all down here. When you come down during communion, you can just kind of pick it up as you go by. So that would be awesome. We're in Genesis 18. And uh, this is an interesting story. I'm going to read the text as we go through it because it's uh, sort of long. Um, but let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you that we too can be here and learn about you and we can learn from the Bible and we can be with our church family. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we ask for understanding that we would uh, get this passage to the extent that it changes our lives and changes our thinking and changes our prayers. For this, we need your grace and your spirit. Give us the desire and the ability to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a story recently about a bank president uh, who was uh, needed to get some money out of his own bank. So he went to the ATM machine that was in the lobby, and uh, it was performing the transaction rather slowly. And after a brief wait, he was heard to say, Come on already, it's me. <laughs> Automatic teller machines apparently uh, treat bank presidents the same way they treat everybody else. But what about God? Should God respond to my prayers in a special way because it's me? We like to think so, don't we? And it's true that God's no respecter of persons, but it's also true that some people are friends of God in some special sense. They know God, they see answers to prayer more consistently than others do. And the old saying, it's not what you know, but who you know, is still true. Connections make a difference. Being a friend of God is the ultimate connection. 
And Abraham was a friend of God. We're specifically told that three times uh, in the scriptures, in Second Chronicles, in Isaiah, and in James. And in Genesis 18, we started uh, by seeing him show hospitality to the Lord and the two angels that appeared in bodily form. And after he served them a meal, they told him that next year the promised son would be given as Sarah would give birth to Isaac. Then the men arose and looked toward Sodom and began to walk in that direction. And Abraham accompanies them. And the Lord speaks so that Abraham can overhear him. And he lets Abraham know about the impending judgment on Sodom. Then as the two angels uh, proceed toward Sodom, Abraham stays alone with the Lord and engages in a dialogue with him, which is usually believed to be the first instance of intercessory prayer recorded in the Bible. So that's what we have today. It's a remarkable scene as Abraham sort of takes on the role of defense attorney for Sodom. And he's arguing before the bench of divine justice. He gets God to agree that if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, he'll stay the execution. Then he cautiously moves to 45, and God agrees. And he dares to move to 40, then 30, 20, and finally 10. And there Abraham rests his case, having prevailed with God. And while God did not find 10 righteous people in Sodom, he did honor Abraham's prayer by rescuing Lot and his family before destroying that region and all its inhabitants. We'll see that next week in Genesis 19. We learn that God wants his friends to plead with him as the righteous and merciful judge of all the earth. And this passage reveals the role of God's people as the salt of the earth because of Abraham. God would have been willing to spare Sodom if only 10 righteous people could have been found in it. Now, wicked societies tend to despise righteous people. And yet it's because of the righteous that God's judgment is often withheld. And there are times in history when God declares that a wicked nation has filled up the measure of its sins. And when that occurs, even the godly can't deliver that people from judgment. But until that point is reached, God's people are the safeguard of a nation as they pray and live righteously before God. And now we learn that Sodom and Gomorrah has gone over the edge, over the brink. God is determined to judge these evil cities and hold them up as a warning to all future generations of his coming final judgment. Since that day is drawing near, this passage applies to us all. God wants us, as his friends, to plead with him concerning his plan of righteousness and justice for all the nations. And as we pray, God will be pleased to save many before that great and awful day of the Lord. So the first thing we see in this text is that God reveals judgment. Starting at verse 16, God reveals judgment. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, verse 19 and 20 are sort of the two key verses here. And verse 19 can be translated as either I have chosen him or I have known him. The Lutheran uh, Bible scholar H.C. Leppold translates it, for I acknowledge him to be my intimate friend. The Lord shares his secrets with his friends. Same way Jesus told his disciples in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Abraham here is shown to be God's friend as the Lord reveals his divine plan for judgment to him. Now, Abraham was God's chosen one who received the promise that he would be a blessing to all the nations. We see that's reaffirmed again in verse 18. The fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham is centered in Jesus Christ, the Savior, Abraham's descendant through Isaac. And God's purpose is to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed, but not to save all from judgment, as we see here with Sodom. Now, verse 19 shows the interplay between God's covenant and Abraham's responsibilities in light of that covenant. And while God's promises to Abraham are unconditional, at the same time, God's training, or Abraham's training in God's ways, is an essential part of the fulfillment of the promise. God states that he had known Abraham as his friend. Verse 19 again, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about commanding his children and his household, but I think the main point here is to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, righteousness refers to conduct which conforms to the ethical and moral standard that stems from God's character. Righteousness is essentially when you're being like God. Justice points to the administration of God's righteousness in human affairs, such as government or society, through an honest and consistent application of the law. And so in this text, righteousness and justice refer first to God as a description of God and his character. Then it refers to how God wants his people to live, and finally, in particular, how God wants Abraham and his family to live. However, one of the things we pick up in the text is the words righteousness and justice are seen to be missing from the vocabulary of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord tells Abraham, verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Remember when Cain killed Abel all the way back in Genesis 4? I think that was like March. 
And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Sin cries out to God. Just as right now, there are many sounds that surround us which we can't hear without a radio to tune them in. Same way, we're not aware of all the sins around us. But God is. They cry out to him for righteousness and justice. And in speaking to Abraham, God's making a point. Whenever he inflicts judgment, he does it on the basis of his own perfect righteousness and justice. The world rejects the notion of God's judgment. If you remember, Sodom had a taste of it 15 years before, back in Genesis 14. The five lesser kings at the southern end of the Dead Sea, including both Sodom and Gomorrah, had risen up against the four greater kings of the east. We have a map in here. I don't know who's got the clicker. I don't. Ah, you have the clicker. Can Does it reach? Well, you might have to come closer. Ah, there we go. A map. Well, the kings of the east had uh, come in and conquered the cities in this area down here. See these five cities in Genesis 14. And uh, there's five lesser kings in those five cities. They decided they were going to rise up against the great kings, you know, places like Assyria and, and Babylon and so on. So they said, we're not having any of that. They came in, conquered these five lesser kings, and uh, captured all the people and all their possessions. This happened back in Genesis 14. But Abraham came to the rescue. You may remember the sermon on Captain Abraham. And he came in the rescue. He defeated those four greater kings, rescued all the people, including Lot, and restored their possessions. But apparently... Most of them shrugged off the incident as just a run of bad luck. And they continued, continued full bore with their sin. It should have served notice that they needed to repent of their sin before it was too late. Now Sodom, here at the end of the Dead Sea, Sodom and Gomorrah at the bottom of the Dead Sea, this is where Abraham lives. Remember he was under the trees, the oaks of Mamre, when the Lord came to him, he generally lived in Hebron. Jerusalem's up here. Bethlehem's right about there. And uh, so that morning in Sodom, everybody got up, assuming it would be another day just like any other day. If you asked the man on the street, how's it going? He would have said, great. Stock market's up. City's not at war. I got a good job. Life is good. And 24 hours later, he and everyone else were dead. And the city was destroyed. Now, to the pagans living nearby, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah surely was an unfortunate natural disaster. I'm sure if it happened in our day uh, and age, there'd be video footage of it on the evening news, along with explanations by geologists of how this sort of thing could happen. But no one would be saying, the holy God of heaven has judged a wicked people. And while God's judgment always comes suddenly, 
It never comes without ample warning. These cities got warning. They've been conquered and rescued. And they return to their ways. And these examples have been given to us to warn us so we won't be deceived into thinking that because God's judgment is delayed, that it's not coming at all. God's plan of righteousness and justice means that no sin escapes his notice and no sin escapes his judgment. When you stand before God, either your sin will be upon Christ because you fled to the cross or you will stand condemned by a holy God. God has revealed his plan of righteousness and justice to us, his friends. So what are we to do with this knowledge? Well, we've already seen that we're to do righteousness and justice. But we're also to do what Abraham does. And Abraham pleads for the righteous. Starting in verse 22, Abraham pleads for the righteous. The text says, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And you have to understand, this is a major city. It's along these routes. You have these two cities that have access to water. And the text is talking about utterly destroying them and everybody in them. And it tells us the two angels start off on a path towards Sodom. You can see sort of the path that they would take there where the arrow is. 
Now, the Lord hasn't directly told Abraham he's going to judge the wicked city, but Abraham puts two and two together, listening to the Lord speak. And so he cautiously approaches the Lord and argues his case. And here we see both the heart of God, who delights in the prayers of his people, and the heart of Abraham, who pleads God's mercy for the people, the righteous among the sinful. And in these verses, there are four principles of how to plead with God in prayer. Four principles of how to plead with God in prayer. They're there in your outline. First, to plead with God, we must draw near to him. Abraham's still standing before the Lord. And then we read verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Only those who are close to God can intercede with him on behalf of others. Now Abraham is separate from Sodom. You see, he lives far away. He's on the other side of the Dead Sea. Lot is living in Sodom. And over the years, it's gotten caught up in its sinful ways. But it is Abraham, not Lot, who intercedes for the city. And there's this distinct contrast between Abraham, who's living peaceably in his tent, where he entertains the Lord and his angels, and Lot, who's living in a house which Abraham never had, and he's in the fast lane of wicked Sodom. The great Presbyterian preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse once observed, the longer one remains in the presence of God, the more perspective he gains on the world. The longer one remains in the presence of God, the more perspective he gains on the world. I think that's true. You don't have to wallow in the mud of the world to understand it. The Bible gives us an adequate understanding of sin and its consequences. And if we walk in holiness before God and meditate on his word, we'll have enough insight on the world and on people so that we can pray for and counsel them properly. And please understand, walking in holiness, easier said than done. But it starts with drawing near to God. Second, to plead with God, we must appeal to him. Abraham appeals to God based on who God is. Look at verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Since he knows God is righteous and just, since he knows God is merciful, Abraham could ask that he spare the whole city, this wicked city, on behalf of the few righteous people who live there. And yet he is just. He won't ultimately uh, treat the righteous and wicked in the same manner. When we pray, we have to keep both aspects of God's character in view, righteousness and justice and mercy. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 11, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In Paul's words, we must remember both the kindness and the severity of God and then pray accordingly. What we learn about God should guide how we pray. And underlying all of this is Abraham's concern for God's reputation. We might say Abraham's concern for God's glory. He's concerned that if God wipes out the righteous with the wicked, others are going to question his justice. Now, I don't think Abraham was quite right in that sometimes God's temporal 
judgment falls on both the righteous and the wicked. If you're not sure about that, look up Luke 13. But God always does right, no matter how it appears to sinful men. But Abraham's motive is right to appeal to the reputation of God and to desire that essentially God look good in the eyes of the world. Theologically, we say that God be glorified in the world. When we pray, we should appeal to him on the basis of his glory and his person as revealed in his word, and especially with the balance between his mercy and his judgment. Now sometimes, not sometimes, often, people will ask me to pray for a loved one or a friend who is sick or ill or has some disease, and I'll ask them, what should I pray for? They're usually taken aback. They're like, what do you mean? Which I just told you, they're sick and they're ill. You should pray that they get healed. You should know that. You're a preacher. You went to school. Didn't they teach you anything there? What if the illness is God's, excuse me, is God's way of bringing that person to repentance? Should I pray against that? What if you have some crisis in your life, in your family? Perhaps God's using that to draw you to himself. Should I pray against that? Maybe you're about to lose your job. Maybe God doesn't want you working there and he has something else for you. Should I pray against that? Usually we ask for prayer when we think we know what God's doing. We think we know what the right outcome is. Of course God wants me to be healed. You he's bringing to repentance, but me, you know... I'm just trying to get across the point that our prayers are to be in line with God's glory and with his merciful yet holy person. And sometimes they're not. And often we ask God to do things and we don't know what he's trying to accomplish in that person's life. And that brings us to the third principle, which is to plead with God, we have to maintain perspective, particularly a right perspective. Abraham displays this reverent boldness to the Lord, but never presumption. There's a fine line between faith and presumption. In verse 27, he uses the word Adonai, meaning Lord or Master. And he's quick to acknowledge that he is but dust and ashes. Note the Lord doesn't correct Abraham. He doesn't tell him, you need to boost your self-esteem. Calvin points out that the nearer Abraham approaches to God, the more fully sensible does he become of the miserable and abject condition of men. The closer he gets to God, 
the more he realizes his own sinful condition. God has told us to come boldly before his throne in prayer, but only that we may receive mercy and grace. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We draw near only as unworthy sinners who appeal to him on the merit and worthiness of Christ. And Abraham maintains the proper perspective towards those for whom he is praying. There's no hint that he thought of himself as better than those in Sodom. That would have been easy to do. He knew many of the people from the time he had rescued them from the kings of the east. He could have looked down on them. I risk my neck for those bums. Now look at them. When are they going to wise up and get with the program? But Abraham prays for Sodom with a very real awareness of his own sinfulness. We need that same perspective in our prayers. We need a reverent boldness in coming before the Lord and arguing our case, but we need to remember at all times that we're unworthy sinners who have found mercy. As one commentator wrote, a man who has himself received, received mercy seeks to secure mercy for others. So to plead with God, we have to draw near to him. We have to appeal to him. We have to maintain our perspective. And fourth, to plead with God, we must persevere. Abraham continues on from point to point, daring to ask God for more until he goes as far as he dares. Someone once said that Abraham ceased asking before God ceased giving. My sense is that Abraham sensed that he was at the limit uh, with 10. And if he went further, he'd no longer be pleading according to God's will. But realize, as we'll see next week in Genesis 19, God does more than Abraham asked for. He doesn't find 10 righteous but we read tellingly in Genesis 19, as the cities of the plain are going up in flames, so it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot's an alien in this city. He's not from there. And he may or may not have been the only righteous person in Sodom. The text isn't clear. But it does tell us that God saved Lot because God remembered Abraham. God answered Abraham's prayer and pleading by rescuing Lot and his family before destroying Sodom. We need to remember, again, prayer is not asking God to do my will, but to do his will. And yet Jesus taught that we need to persist in prayer. In Luke 18, our responsive reading this morning, he told the parable of the unrighteous judge who wouldn't listen to the repeated pleas of the widow. And finally, to get some relief, he gave her what she wanted. How much more, says Jesus, will God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him? We read that in Luke 18. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? There's this connection between faith 
and persevering in prayer. And I think all too often, and for all too many of us, there's a lack of both. We don't pray very much, partially because we don't believe very much. And we don't often pray big prayers. I mean, most of our prayers are oriented around ourselves. I mean, if we could read a transcript of our prayers over the past week, I have a hunch that many of them would be for personal needs. Lord, help me with this exam. Help me get a job. Heal my aunt, uncle, nephew, cousin of this disease. Help me with my anger. Let me figure out what to cook for dinner. Of course, they're all legitimate topics for prayer. However, in the Lord's Prayer, first item of business is the honor and purpose of the Father. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After that comes prayer for our needs. And our prayers, like Abraham, should center on what God is doing in the world. You and I have the same responsibility as Abraham in our own day. We have the opportunity and the obligation to plead with God for the sake of the righteous. We live in a world that's full of wickedness. We live in a society that has institutionalized and legislated evil into the very fabric of our culture. Surely, if Sodom and Gomorrah, by its wickedness, merited God's attention, then our culture deserves the same. And even further, like Abraham, we've been given privileged access to the counsels of God. He spoke with God. We have the scriptures. We look at them and we know for certain that a day is coming when the Lord will return in judgment. We've been given inside information. And knowing what we know, we of all people should pray for God's mercy upon this place for the sake of the righteous. We should pray that evil would be exposed and addressed. We should pray for justice and against injustice. We should pray that God would withhold his hand, or if not, then we should pray that he would spare and deliver his people amidst his judgments. And in spite of their being enmeshed uh, in their culture, in spite of their reluctance to let go of worldly things, a reluctance which Lot will demonstrate, but which God nevertheless very graciously looks past. We should pray for God to be glorified by showing mercy to lost family members and lost friends and lost neighbors. We should pray for lost nations and the missionaries who are seeking to reach them with the gospel. We should pray for this church, that God would be glorified here. We should pray for our lost community, for Leesburg and Loudoun County in Northern Virginia, that God would stay his hand of judgment and that many would turn from their sin and trust in him. So again, what is the minimum number of righteous for whom God would be willing to spare the wicked? In Abraham's dialogue, the number stopped at 10. Why? Because I think, really, Abraham realized at the end of the day, it didn't matter how low that number was. Abraham might have well have bargained and pleaded all the way down to one. But even then it wouldn't have mattered because the person with the necessary sort of righteousness to avert God's wrath was not to be found in that city. The one in whom the sort, that sort of righteousness, 
uh, righteousness could be found had not come yet. But he would come, and he did. What is the minimum number of righteous for whom God would be willing to spare the wicked? One. Just one. And that righteous one is Jesus. Jesus, son of David, seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And Christ did what Abraham could never do. He became sin on the cross, bearing all the unrighteousness and injustices uh, of those who had come to him. Our sins are focused on Christ on the cross. And on the cross, Christ was robed in all that's wicked and hateful as the mass of our corruption poured over him. And with horror, Christ found his entire being to be sin in the Father's sight. Again, Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged, is hanged on a tree. On the cross, Christ suffered the fiery wrath of God's righteous judgment. He did this to redeem us from our sins. Paul explained that, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. In this world, it's God's people who are called to mediate his hope like Abraham in his day, as his people were to lead lives of righteousness and justice. As God's people, we reach out to the needy, we love the sinner, we give of our resources, we sacrifice ourselves for the lost, and we plead with God for their souls. And God hears us. And through Christ, God calls a people to himself. It's time to plead. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, chapter after chapter, you show so much grace and mercy to Abraham. He approached you with boldness, as you have told us to do, but we don't. We profess our faith, but we don't act on it. And that's because our faith is weak and our prayers are weak and our righteousness is weak. We don't seek your grace and mercy because we know we're not worthy. But thank you, God, that Jesus is worthy. Thank you that at the cross of Christ we're made righteous. So, Lord, here you are again showing grace to the undeserving to us. Lord, thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.